Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Bible, and that you would just reveal yourself to us, Lord, and speak to our hearts and give us an ear to hear what it is you're speaking to us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me have you open up Hebrews chapter 7, and it's the same notes from two weeks ago, um, but we did the first half of them, and we're going to do the rest of them now. So on the, in your notes, it starts with verse 11, where it says Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant, if, if you have the right notes. And if you want the notes from the week before that, that that's over here, turned upside down. But I think all of you had those already. So we've been looking at, and I think we'll finish it up this evening, hopefully. Um, first, we looked at how Jesus has the superior revelation, and everything in the book of Hebrews is based on this revelation, on the scripture. And we talked about how Jesus is better than the angels, how Jesus is better than Moses, and now we've been looking at how Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. So look with me at chapter 7, we'll just jump in with verse 11, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 22, but I'll just take them slowly. Let's start with verse 11. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 11, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So we go back to Psalm 110, verse 4, that's being quoted several times here, as being used as a foundation of this, where God swore that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it may seem overtly simple, but so much of the scripture and the true understanding of the scripture is really simple. And, but the simplicity of it is this, that David wrote that psalm, and the author of the book of Hebrews is arguing from a theologically correct standpoint that when David wrote that psalm, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the moment in time when he wrote that psalm is hundreds of years later than the giving of the law. And so after the giving of the law, God spoke through David and established it in the word with this oath. And we'll be looking at that oath tonight in more detail with this oath that God said, I, we already talked about it last week, but two weeks ago, but I swore that you are, and God swears by himself, if you remember that from two weeks ago, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the question is, why would you need a new priesthood? Because a different order is a different priesthood. Why would you need a new priesthood if the old priesthood was good enough to save you? And the answer is very simply, the old priesthood was not designed to bring salvation to us. The old priesthood was designed, as Paul says in Galatians, simply to be a tutor that would lead us unto Christ, a teacher. You know, your fourth grade teacher did not have as his or her assignment in life to complete and perfect your learning, 
did he or she. <laughs> Their assignment was simply to give you the fourth grade level so you could move on to the next level. And so the perfection comes in Jesus Christ, not through the Levitical priesthood. It says if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, then there'd be no other reason for this. Okay, so a few things I want to talk about in this, and we'll just take a few minutes to look at this, is number one is that the law was ordained on the foundation of the Levitical priesthood. And that's something that perhaps you've never thought about before. Because it seems like if you just read through the Bible or listen to the Sunday school lesson that the law established the Levitical priesthood. But that's not the case. The Levitical priesthood is the foundation and the law is built upon that foundation, was given to them upon the foundation of the priesthood. Because the law would, do, would have done nothing for Israel except completely destroy them. They would have been wiped out in one day if there was not a high priest who would be able to offer sacrifices for their sin. Okay? So let me talk just a little bit about law, okay? the understanding of the law. And there'll be a few things here that perhaps you've never thought of before. So the Hebrew word for law is Torah, of course, and in, in the scripture, in the first five books of the Bible, uh, the five books of Moses are called the Torah or the law. But both the Hebrew and the Greek word kind of have the same meaning. And it's a really interesting meaning. The Greek word is nomos, nomos, okay? And that word has at least, there's actually more, but at least three basic meanings to it. Okay, and it's sometimes very interesting to look at a word and see what its foundational meaning is and then what it began to, to imply or to signify over, over time. And the foundational meaning of nomos that was still used, and it's actually used in the, in the scripture also if you, um, the, the context would demand it. Of course, it's almost always used for the law, but the foundational meaning is a pasture. You know what a pasture is? Green grass where sheep eat their food, okay? <laughs> that kind of pasture. A pasture or a feeding place, and then it also had the meaning of the food itself, the grass they were eating or the grain that they were feeding the animals to fatten them up. It also had the meaning in this same context of a range, you know, like home on the range, a range where where animals roamed and where they ate and where they drank and where they lived. You know, most animals don't go beyond, some animals and birds especially, butterflies also, they migrate. But even in their migration, they have a certain range that they usually keep to. And, and uh, most uh, mammals don't, well, they migrate, but they don't migrate as far as birds migrate, right? They stay within a certain range. So they have this, it had that meaning also. And it even came to be used as to, to describe the, uh, a musical range, uh, someone's range in their voice or the range of an instrument with musical notes. And the reason I'm pointing that out to you is so you really can understand that that's the foundational meaning of nomos. But then it also has a secondary meaning. The secondary meaning is still not law yet. Law comes in a minute. The secondary meaning is a district or a province. When it was used in a political sense, used for people, then you don't call where people live a range, you call that their district or their province. We live in Nevada, and in particular, we live in northern Nevada. 
And as long as our homes are in northern Nevada, most of our lives are being spent in northern Nevada, right? And if you want to extend that to the state of Nevada, well, you've got to get your documents done here, you've got to have your address here, you know, in the same way it was in ancient law and in ancient custom. People lived, and even more so because they didn't have the modes of transportation we have today, they lived within districts and provinces, and so this same word is used for that. And only then, in its third meaning, or its tertiary meaning, does it come to mean a law. And it really doesn't even mean law so much. You could almost translate the word as custom, because in ancient times, laws were written down, I'm going to say in ancient times, but I want you to see this still true today, laws were written down to reflect the customs of the people who lived and how they lived. So we live like this, so we make a law that says this is how you know, we live. And so it came to mean custom. Uh, a custom is kind of like our food. It's like our pasture. It's how we live, how we work, the way we act, what's, what's considered normal in our society. Different countries have different customs and different, custom, different countries have different laws, right? So that's where the word law or ordinance comes from, uh, the word that's used here and throughout the Bible. And then there's a verb in Greek that we see here in verse uh, 11, where we see, in, in my Bible, it's called, it says, received the law, received the law. And that verb that's translated in my Bible as received uh, is the verb nomotheteo, which means to lay down a law. It's just two words smashed together, to lay down a law. And if it's used in the transitive, if you remember, hopefully Frank remembers, at least he's in school right now, some of your lessons from English grammar, the transitive means that it has a direct object to it. Then it, it simply means to make a law. But if it's used in the intransitive, as it is here, and it's only used this way in the Bible, it means to ordain, to establish, or to receive to receive a law, okay? So in the original, where Greek, where we read here, received the law, those three words in English translate one single verb in Greek. And that verb means that to ordain, to establish, or to receive the law. So what it's saying here, and this is important, what it's saying here is that on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the Ten Commandments were ordained. As I already said, had they been ordained without a priesthood, it would have meant certain death for everyone, including Moses, because they had all already broken those commandments before they were ever even ordained. But God provided, this is so important, God provided the answer before he stated the problem. God provided the salvation before he showed us how much trouble we were in. They were established on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. Now, let me tell you something about our society that can help you better understand what's going on in America today, because we'll read this in verse 12, and we'll see this in just a minute. But when the custom changes, then the laws change to reflect the custom. That's why in the United States of America today, for example, we have legalized things that are illegal in God's law, because we've changed our customs. We've adopted to something uh, new. We, we've had abortion, gay marriage, what, whatever it is that you want to talk about, and then all kinds of little things 
also that go along with it. But the problem really is not that someone's writing bad laws. And the change really will never come by changing the laws. The change comes when we change people's hearts. And only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. The laws simply reflect what is happening inside of people's hearts already. So a change in custom brings a change in laws. And a change in custom signifies that the foundations of our society have changed. Remember, the foundation here is the Levitical priesthood. This may sound strange to you, but this is actually true in our country today, and it's true in every country, it's just it's not a Levitical priesthood. When there is a death, and we'll talk about the death of the high priest in a minute, when there is a death of beliefs, when there is a death of morals, when there is a death of what I'll just call figuratively the high priest, we change our religion, if you will, we change our morals, we change our gods, okay? Then our customs change, and because our customs change, we make new laws to reflect uh, those customs. And so the problem really is not a legislative problem, the problem is a spiritual problem in people's hearts. So then their law, the law of Moses, was given on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. But it wasn't good enough. And so there had to be another priest arise according to the order of Melchizedek. And this priest would not be designated according to the order of Aaron. So Jesus is not from the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. Now, just explain a couple other things just in case you don't know this. So we have, in the Old Testament, we have Levites and we have priests. And a simple way of understanding that is every priest is a Levite. A priest can only come from the tribe of Levi, okay? But not every Levite is a priest because the priest has to come from the line of Aaron, okay? So every Levite is a servant in the house of God, and in a loose sense, you might call them priests, but... It's like they're ushers, home group leaders, whatever you want to say. They all serve in worship. They, they guard the doors. Everything that we have and would want to have in our church, those are what you would refer to as Levites in the Old Testament. But not every Levite was qualified to be a priest, okay? Um, and so, and then not every priest was chosen to be the high priest, of course. So look at verse 12. It says, for when the priesthood is changed, the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Take that verse and apply it to America today. It's exactly what I was talking about. The the law changes because the priesthood has changed, because we've changed our gods, because we've changed our morals, because we've changed our belief. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So, one of the big examples in the scripture that talks about a changing of law according to the changing of the priesthood is the law concerning the city of refuge, which is real appropriate because God's spoken many times over this uh, church that this would be a city of refuge. And we understand, and I'm not going to open up these verses, but you could look at Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35 would be a good place to look. 
And then Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 is real important also. Numbers 35 and Joshua chapter 20. There are other places that talk about the cities of, of refuge. So, so that you understand, when God, for various reasons that I won't go into, when God designated that the Levites, they would serve him uh, in his house, they would be his servants, and I know that seems like a great honor, but you also need to see the other side of the coin that Jesus, or God, well, Jesus chose them, and that's not only a great honor, but it's an it's a, it's a, I don't, I hate this word, but it's, it's, it's a position of slavery. They have to serve God in his house, okay? And they're not allowed, the Levites were not allowed to own any property. They were not given a portion of land in the land of Israel. But what they were given instead is the tithe. And a part of the tithe was that each one of the different tribes had to give up certain cities, and they would tithe these cities. It was all based, it's a tithe because it was based on their proportions. So if the tribe was larger and they had more land, like Ephraim, then they had to give up more cities. If they were really small, like Benjamin, they didn't have to give up as many cities. Everybody gave in proportion to what God had given them because everything comes from God, okay? And so they gave in proportion to what they had and the Levites were designated, according to the law, 48 cities. And they lived in those cities. And then they were given, and I won't measure this out in English because I didn't take the time to figure it out, but it's a lot, but not that much. They were given 2,000 cubits on the north, south, and east, and west of that city. And that square were their fields where they could plant their, their grain. You know, they didn't have grocery stores back then. If you didn't plant, you didn't eat. So that's where they raised their, their food, and they had those cities. Then out of those cities... Six of those Levitical cities were called cities of refuge, and they were spread around the nation of Israel. And this was a place where a person could run for refuge. In the particular case that's designated in Scripture, historians say perhaps it would have been for other things. But in particular, if you killed somebody on accident, it was not first-degree murder, okay? You killed them on accident, right? You got in a chariot wreck, and they died. According to the law, their family would have the right to take revenge on you. And because you killed them, then you shall be put to death also. And this is the most ancient thing going back to Cain and Abel, that the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. It must be avenged. Um, by the way, God gave refuge to Cain also. It's interesting because God established capital punishment, but the first case of it, God had mercy. I love that because it shows me that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And that's salvation for all of us. So if you had killed somebody on accident, you could run to one of these cities. And in short, you would state your case probably at the gate of the city. And the elders of the city, who were all Levites, would listen to your case. And if they believed your case had merit, they would let you into the city. And you would live in that city. And you could never leave that city. So it was like a nice prison. Okay, everything was okay, but you didn't get to see your family anymore. You didn't get to see your kids, your wife, or whoever it was. You were in prison, a nice prison, but you were in prison in this penal colony, so to speak. But it's very interesting that it was the city where the Levites lived all the time. Now think about this phrase, in Christ. Maybe you'll think about it in a different way. They were in the Levites. 
Okay? These, these, and it's interesting that God, at least in the scripture, picks out you know, what would be considered the worst of sins. These are murderers. Well, not murder in the sense of first-degree murder. But they, they've killed people. And it could have been by accident. It could have been because you got in a fist fight and you didn't mean for that punch to drive his nose bone into his brain or whatever, like in these Bruce Lee movies. I, I don't have personal experience with these things. But that, you know, that this, this happened and the person died. You know, or because you gave him something to drink and forgot that you had mixed fertilizer in there with the drink or something. The person died. And so you had to live in this penal colony, but the penal colony was in the Levites. But the Levites are nothing but an extension of the high priest, okay? The high priest is who's really important here. So you were not really in the Levites. You were in the high priest, and you lived in the city that belongs exclusively to the high priest. Why do I say that? Because did you know that the high priest actually did not give tithes to anybody, at least according to the scripture? He only got tithes. And here's who gave tithes to him. All the Levites gave tithes to the priest. There weren't a lot of priests, but whoever was the priest, they received tithes from the Levites. They got a tithe of the tithe, is what it says. They got 10% of the 10%. And it's a confusing system, and it's more complicated than that, but that's the, the simple version of it. So... You're living in that city, and you have to stay there. You can't leave. If you leave, that person you killed, his relatives might be sitting out there on the other side of the wall. And as soon as you walk out, they have every right, according to the law, to kill you. And that's it. And they won't be arrested. They didn't do anything wrong. They're taking vengeance for the death of, of their relative. So you stay there. But you don't have to stay there until you die. It's a really beautiful picture in the Old Testament. You only have to stay there until the high priest dies. And when the high priest, so you kind of hope that the high priest is really old when this happens to you. <laughs> it's kind of like the year of Jubilee thing. You kind of want to go into debt in the 49th year because then you get out of it in the 50th year. But um, and some people live their lives like that, by the way. Deathbed confessions, <laughs> turning to Jesus at the last second. But I can promise you, you would have been happier to never killed anybody and to never been in debt in the first place. But either way, God accepts the deathbed confessions too. And the, those people are saved as if by fire also. But when the high priest dies, then you get to leave the city and you go home. And nobody can touch you. You're free, 100% free from the guilt of your sin because the high priest died. That's a law in the scripture. So with, as it says in verse 12, the priesthood changes because the priest died, the high priest died. And that means that the law changes also. You're no longer guilty. Well, I don't need to explain to you. This is an obvious type, shadow, picture of Jesus Christ. That as our high priest, when he died, we were in him. Why did that guy get to go home? Because he's in the high priest. He's imprisoned inside of the high priest. So when the high priest dies, it's the same as if he died. And so you're not guilty anymore if you're dead, are you? I mean, the worst punishment we can give to people is capital punishment. Well, after they're dead, that's it. There's nothing else you can do. So now that the high priest dies, you get to go home. Okay, so when the high priest dies, the law changes. Um, but what's brought out here is that the Levitical priesthood and the high priest line of Aaron could never actually do this in a spiritual sense. Everything that happened on the earth 
was just a picture of what Jesus would do for us. Because you know, if, you know, I don't know, let's pick on John Montero, if I accidentally ran over John Montero and he died, and then Jordan and Jesse and whoever were coming to kill me, and I ran to the city of refuge, and I hid out there for 40 years, and I came out. They may not be able to kill me now, but I'm still going to feel guilty because I killed my friend. It's not going to really wipe my sin away. Okay? It's just a picture. It's just a type and a shadow. But we're supposed to know that in Christ Jesus, our sin is actually wiped away. There's no more guilt. It's taken away, and we've been made free. So, the law and the Levitical priesthood couldn't do it. And so, according to Psalm 110, verse 4, um, Jesus is established, he is ordained as our high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. So let's look at verse 13, and we'll read a few verses. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus belongs to another tribe. Who knows what tribe Jesus is from? Judah, right? And they'll say that in verse 14. So he's not a Levite. And if you're not a Levite, you cannot, according to the law, be a priest. You have to be born into it. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the, every jot and every tittle of scripture is used in this argument. So this part of the argument is focused on this word forever. If God said concerning his Messiah, concerning his son, that you are a priest forever, that means that the life of Jesus, it's not even based on, it's really interesting because it's written to the Hebrews. It's not based on, I saw the resurrected Lord, or Paul told me he saw the resurrected Lord, or Peter, he came and talked to me and he saw the resurrected Lord. It's not based on those kind of uh, apologetic things that prove that Jesus raised from the dead. It's based on this. And for every, for every Hebrew leader or reader of this scripture, and should be for every person who reads this scripture, it's, the book of Hebrews really establishes the authority of, of the Bible, that that, if God wrote it, if it's written down in the scripture, then it's the final word. That's it. And it says the word forever, and that means that the life of Jesus is indestructible, that he has raised up from the dead. And so it's said of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's read on. In verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, okay? So the former commandment, that means the law, is too weak and is utterly useless for salvation. It doesn't mean it's weak and useless for everything. It has great application for our lives on this earth, okay? And Paul talks about this a lot in Galatians and in Romans. 
The law is holy. The law is just. But for the point of salvation, it has no power to save anyone for eternity. It has no power to wash the sin away from our, our lives. So it's weak and it's useless, and so it was set aside. For the, notice that it doesn't say it was annulled. It doesn't say it was destroyed. Because Jesus did not come to annul the law or to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. But if it is fulfilled in Jesus, then it's no longer necessary. You know what the scripture says, and it's very true, and you know it in practice in your life, that if we love our neighbor as ourselves, then we don't need anybody to tell us, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. Everything is summed up in that, in love. And that the fruit of the Spirit against such things, there is no law. There's no need for the law if we walk in the Spirit. Okay? The law is for those who do not walk in the Spirit. And if we do not walk in the Spirit, then we answer before the law. But in verse 19 it says, For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, this is Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Okay, this, there's a lot of words here. Okay, There's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but I want to try to take it briefly and just for you not to miss the big picture. It's sometimes... Uh, you can miss the big picture if you get too much into the details. But the more you understand the Old Testament, the easier it is to understand uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, of course, because it's written to people that very well understand the Old Testament. So notice that it says, the law made nothing perfect. Well, we'll, we'll see this in the following verses, but so that you understand what this really means. So the, the, the high point of the law the biggest thing that happened every year, that's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's the most important thing because that's the day when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and he offers a blood sacrifice. He, takes, he doesn't offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, but he takes the blood into the Holy of Holies and he makes atonement for the sin of all the people and for his own sin. Okay? So that's the most important thing. You know, everything else pales in importance to this. This is the most important thing. But the very fact that he has to do it every single year proves that the law doesn't do, make anything perfect. You know, if it's perfect, then you don't have to repeat it. Uh, renewing your marriage vows is a wonderful thing. I've been involved in those kinds of things. It can be really romantic and be really good, and especially in a marriage where there's been some serious trouble, perhaps, etc. But you don't have to renew your marriage vows, do you? You know, Tanya and I made marriage vows to each other. That's perfect. It's done. We're married until we're dead. That's it. You don't have to come back every single year and make new marriage vows. You don't have to come back every single year and renew some kind of vows before your children that you're their father or mother. There are certain things in life that are just made perfect. They're done, and that's it. So the very fact that the law requires the high priest to do this every single year proves that that blood of those animals could not wash away your sin. That it was looking forward to um, 
something else. So Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He did not come from Levi. So according to the law of Moses, he has no right to serve as a priest. But God established him as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now he could be the king because he's of the tribe of Judah. And David is of the tribe of Judah. And he is born to David. But the argument here is not about a king. It's about a king who is a priest. Because just to be a king alone cannot bring salvation to the people. We need a king who is a priest. We need someone who actually has authority. That's a king. And he actually has power. That's a priest. Okay? The priest actually had the in with God. Only God can forgive sins. Remember in the Gospel of John, uh, that, that's um, when Jesus says, what, what's more difficult, for me to tell this man to pick up his bed and walk or to say that your sins are forgiven? Because he comes and he says, your sins are forgiven to the lame man. And the people say, oh, how can you say it? Blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And he said, well, which, which one of these two is more difficult? Well, the answer is it's more difficult to say, pick up your bed and walk. Because if I just say, I forgive you of your sins, I don't need any physical proof of it, right? But you need a physical proof that the guy was healed. So he says, pick up your bed and walk. The guy walks, and that proves that he's the son of God, that he has the power to forgive sin. So only God can forgive sin. But the priest, he has his position from God, and so the priest has the power to forgive people their sin. We see this in the gospel. Jesus tells the disciples that uh, whoever's sin you forgive, it shall be forgiven them in heaven. And whatever sin you remit or you refuse to forgive, it will not be forgiven them in heaven. It's the authority of Jesus Christ working through his um, disciples. But the forgiveness comes from God. So we need someone who's a king. A king has authority. And we need someone who's a priest. He has power. We need both of these. Well, Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, but he's not of the tribe of Levi. But in his resurrection, see, Jesus was raised from the dead. In his resurrection, he was made like Melchizedek, who's used, as we've already seen this, as an example of someone who lives forever. He's, used, he's made to live forevermore, and that death has no power over him. By his resurrection, he is qualified to fulfill the oath of Psalm 110, verse 4. This is the power of an indestructible life. Note this. The life of Jesus Christ is indestructible. And that means, whether you want to believe this or not, if you really believe in Jesus, Jesus said in John 11, you will never die. So there's no reason for the fear of death to hold sway over us, to keep us in slavery anymore. We cannot die if we believe in Jesus because his life is indestructible. And because we are in Christ, we already died. And we walked out of our prison into freedom to live forevermore because he is alive forevermore. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. King of peace signifies his priesthood King of righteousness signifies his kingship, okay? It says in chapter 7, verse 2, we looked at it last week, that the name Melchizedek means, the very name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But he's the king of Salem, and the name Salem, Shalom, means peace. So he's both the king of righteousness 
and the king of peace. And he is a high priest who continues forever. And God swore through David that I have established you, my Messiah, you, my Christ, Jesus Christ, as a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the former commandment is set aside. It's rendered invalid. It was, it was weak. It was useless. It could never perfect us before God anyway. And by Christ's death and resurrection, a new hope has been ushered in. Notice that it says we have a new hope. And that by this hope, this hope of a better covenant, this hope that we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus and on the coming of his kingdom. All of the Levites were made priests by birth. They were born into it. They were a privileged class, some people thought. But the truth of it is, if you understand scripture, they were a class that was enslaved to God. They, they had to serve God. They were born into that, that service to God. But in the case of Aaron, the Bible tells us in Exodus 28.1, God spoke to Moses, bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, and separate them from all the rest of Israel. In the case of Aaron, he received the high priesthood because he was related to Moses. It was kind of one of those things where somebody gets a really good position because they're related to somebody. Aaron got chosen because he was, was Moses' brother. The scripture says so. But Jesus has made our high priest today because of his relationship to the Father God, that he is the Son of God, and because he was raised up from the dead by the Father God. And unlike all the priests of the law, now remember, the priesthood was not established by the law. The law is established on the priesthood. But unlike all these priests of the law, very important priesthood, Unlike them, they became priests because of almost by an accident of their birth. It just, they just happened to be born into the priesthood family. It's not an accident, of course, but you know, they didn't do anything to deserve it. Nobody did anything for this. But Jesus becomes our high priest because he was faithful unto death and death on a cross and because he did not sin and because he was raised up from the dead on the third day. And because God establishes priesthood with an oath. And no other, no other priest had his priesthood established with an oath other than Jesus Christ. It is confirmed with an oath. And so, it says, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant for us. Verse 22. You are a priest forever, so much the more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now I think sometimes for us, because we didn't live in the first century, and maybe some of you are, but, but by, we're not Jewish, or at least no Orthodox Jews here for sure, and we didn't live in the first century, and we didn't live through those kind of persecutions that they had, that we can just skip over a word like the better covenant. But I want kind of take you back to where we began this with the introduction to Hebrews, the situation that they were in. The temple is still standing in Jerusalem at this time. And the temple is all-powerful in Rome at this time. Okay? And the, the Caesar in Rome is on the side of the temple 
and on the side of the Pharisees at this time for one simple reason, not because he believes in God, but because they're trying to keep the peace. Okay, And the Jews, they know how to stir up trouble. And that happens in a few years, and it gets so bad that they end up destroying Jerusalem. The Romans end up destroying Jerusalem and the temple also. So it's a, it's a really time of huge change in their society. And many, many of them are leaving the church and going back to the synagogue. There's the, and they, they, they don't say, or they're not maybe changing their mind about Jesus, but they're changing their walk and their lifestyle as it concerns Jesus because the pressure is just really great on them. But if you think about it, honestly, that's not really any different than the world we live in today. And it may not be a temple in Jerusalem, but we have, a complete, we have completely different gods now in the United States. We have completely different gods. We have a whole hierarchy of false gods that rule over this nation. Things that people consider holy. Things that are untouchable. They're, they're holy. They're sanctified unto these false gods. Things that would have been thought perversions and filth, literally 10 years ago maybe, but definitely 20 years ago. Well, definitely 30, at least when I was growing up. And I'm not that old, am I? I mean, I know I look kind of old, but I'm not that old. And everything has changed. We see a change of gods in our country, and that's why the laws are changing. And what the author of Hebrews and what the Holy Spirit is signifying to them and to us is that you have a better covenant. You have something way better than any religion can offer in this world. So do not compromise. See, imagine this law as a pasture, like I said. The original meaning of that word is a pasture. And on the pasture, I don't know that much about animals. John Snyder could tell you a whole lot more. But sometimes I see out here, you know, cows and other animals, but especially cows, I see them eating sage. Now, I particularly like the smell of sage, but I wouldn't want to eat sage. And I definitely can't eat grass. Okay? My dog can't eat grass. He goes out and he eats grass because I guess he likes to throw up for some reason. He eats grass and then you'll see him doing that thing and throwing up the grass. Probably cleanses him out or something. I don't know. But we don't have stomachs that can eat grass, do we? We can eat meat of animals that eat grass, but we can't eat grass. So different animals need different ranges. They need different pastures. You know, humans don't eat like bovine do. You know, bovine don't eat like sheep do. Everybody eats a little bit different. Everybody's got a different situation, right? And that's the way God created everything. And they have their specific pasture. And you'll see animals mix in with other animals from time to time. You know, but by and large, when you see a herd, it's the same type of animal that's, that's in that herd. So I'm living in a country today where I'm being very honest. It's like I don't get what these people are eating. They're walking around in this pasture eating these, this trash that I refuse to put into my mouth. I don't want that in my mouth. I'm not saying I've never tasted it. You know, I've committed sin in my life. I've done wrong in my life. You know, I'm just like every other person. But a few times of checking it out, I figured out that's poison. I don't want that in my life. I don't want that in my family. I just refuse that. I want to eat something healthy for me. I want to... In, when we're talking about food, we're talking about ideas. We're talking about words. You know, I want to eat words that are healthy for me, that build me up. You know, not, not that long ago, I was watching some TV show just on my own on my phone. Oh, that might be interesting. I start watching it. The first 30 minutes, pretty interesting, pretty clean. 
And all of a sudden, everything shifts with all this modern ideology. And for a split second, I think, eh, I'll get through this. The storyline's interesting. And I say, no. They make these things on purpose so that you'll say, I'll get through this. The storyline's interesting. They try to hook you because they want to really groom you for these new gods. They want to change the way that you think so that we think like they. Well, the same thing was happening to the Hebrews then. The same thing was going on in Rome then. And the argument is that you have a better covenant, so stop settling for all this junk. If they want to eat this stuff, you don't have to go out and foment a rebellion and, and you know, let them eat it if they want to eat it. But don't you eat it. I will lead you to green pastures. I will lead you to still waters. I will find for you an enclave where you can eat. And, and a church, you know, a church is a pasture. It's a culture. It's a place where God's law where God's truth should reign, a place for the family of God. So he is the guarantee of a better covenant. Now the word guarantee, I won't even give you the Greek word because it's too much, but here's what it means. Technically, the word means this, to hold something in your hand, that you hold something in your hand. So we do the same thing today when a uh, contract is made, um, you know, people have credit ratings, right? And uh, so we don't do this as much because usually they're not going to let you get in on a deal unless you've got a good credit rating. But let's say you've got a bad credit rating, then somebody else can, you know, be the guarantee of your, your loan, right? They can sign off on that loan. And if you fail, then they end up having to pay for it. They have the good credit rating. Or you can put up collateral on that loan, right? You can get a second mortgage on your house because you want to do something else with the money. And then if you don't pay it back, you lose your house because you've got collateral on the loan. So that's what this word guarantee means. It means that Jesus is the collateral. Jesus is the one who holds that collateral in his hand. If this covenant fails, that could only happen because Jesus failed. It could never happen because I failed. I didn't even make the thing. Remember, Abraham's sound asleep while the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are making the covenant with each other, and then they say, oh, this, this is for you, Abraham. I didn't even make the covenant. So it doesn't hinge on anything except my faith. And the covenant's not going to fail if I don't believe it. I'm just going to fail. The covenant is going to last forever. The promise, the testament that provides the inheritance for us. So we have this better covenant, and it's guaranteed by Jesus, because he's a priest forever. He cannot lose his priesthood. He cannot fail. His order cannot be changed, right? You know the priesthood of Aaron was completely wiped out in A.D. 70, about 1,950 years ago. Why? Because the temple was completely wiped out. And without that place, there's no priesthood. And there's no priesthood to this day because there is no temple. There's no sacrifice to offer. There's no place to offer the sacrifice. And actually, even in the second temple time, it was already waning for hundreds of years. Most people don't know this, but during the whole time of the New Testament, there is no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. The Holy of Holies is actually empty because... According to Jewish tradition, Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. We know it's not in 
some kind of storage unit with Indiana Jones, though. But we don't know what happened to it. But it wasn't even there. So it was already waning. And it, just a few years after this was written, it came to a complete end. But the priesthood of Jesus can never end for the simple reason that it's not based on a physical location. It's not based on some furniture that belongs in a temple or some kind of sacrifices other than the one sacrifice he already offered. And his priesthood is forever and it's established upon an oath. So let's finish real quick. We'll look at verses 23 through 28. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So you had to, the priests had to make the sacrifice every year. That's one thing. And the other thing is you had to have more and more priests because you can't live forever, right? Someday the pastor dies, you've got to get a new pastor. So they had to keep getting new priests. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we have this oath. The son is established as a priest through this oath. His priesthood is perfect and it is eternal. And it says here that he is able, therefore, to save forever those who draw near to God. Now listen to this, because this is really big. I don't know, you're, you're, if you're reading King James, you're going to read it different. If you've got a different version, you might read it different. I didn't check them all out. But in the New American Standard that I'm reading, it says, therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw. That's a really bad translation. I wish they had not done that in the New American Standard. Because you would think that in the Greek, forever in verse 25 is the same as forever in verse 24. But it's not. In verse 24, it's actually the normal phrase, and it's not even a single word. It means for the ages. But the normal phrase is translated as forever. In verse 25, it's actually not the word forever. It's the word that means to the utmost or absolutely, completely in every aspect. So that includes forever, but it includes more than forever. Because when I read he's able to save me forever, it makes me think of, well, after I die, I get to go to heaven. But what it means is that every aspect of my life is saved. My marriage is saved. My family is saved. My finances are saved. My health is saved. Everything that God has for me, I enjoy life and I enjoy it abundantly. And I can completely trust him in every aspect of my life because he is able to save us, as it says, completely, or I even like better, to the utmost. If, and I'm going to put the if in there, if we draw near to God through him. Now, if I don't want to walk in those promises, I don't have to. If I don't want to draw near to God, I don't want to walk in the rest of God that he provides for us, then I won't walk in the blessings of that salvation. And then it will be, I just died and get to go to heaven. But if I want, oh, so much more, he is able to save us to the utmost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, probably you know what Romans 8, 26 and 27 says. It says that you and I, even if we're the greatest prayer warriors on planet Earth, we still do not know how to pray as we ought to pray. We don't even know what to ask for. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which are too deep for words. So we have two verses, here and there. There it says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. 
Here it says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Now the word intercession is a really interesting word because the word intercession in some contexts means to get right into somebody's face and argue your point. Now I don't think Jesus has these, like, a, like the Father is against us and so he has to have this con conflicting argument with the Father. But nonetheless the strength of the word is so powerful that Jesus ever lives in heaven. He stands before the face of the Father, and he is my advocate. He fills in the gap between me and God. He fills in the gap between who I think I am and who I see myself in as with all my failures and my weaknesses and my you know, failings and who God sees me as. And he's with me from the time I was conceived in my mother's womb all the way to the final day of my life on this earth, and he is in charge of making sure that I graduate, that I pass all the tests, that I make it through to the end. You know, if you ever had a really good teacher in school, that's that kind of teacher that's, you know, usually it's a mom who's just your advocate. She's always on your side, no matter what. And Jesus is this intercessor. But not only is Jesus our intercessor, but it says the Holy Spirit who actually lives on the inside of me, he lives inside of me. He lives inside of you. That he intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. You remember, hopefully you remember, we talked a lot about how we are partners with Jesus and we are partners with the Holy Spirit. This word partakers, that's been several times in Hebrews. So he prays through me. He gives us the power to stand as intercessors. Many people fail um, to enjoy the blessings that God wants to have in their lives because they don't understand the power of intercession, the power of standing before God and, and almost cutting a deal with God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus. Not because God's against us, but because we're partners with God. And he wants us to join in, and he wants us to speak our mind, to speak freely before him. And so Jesus ever lives to help us in our intercession, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our intercession. So he is able to save us to the utmost. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. I like the words, it was fitting. It sounds so polite, but it means this really looks good on us. This is my size. I needed to have a high priest who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. The first one was Aaron. And the Bible does a really special job of showing us how weak Aaron is. Because by our standards, you know, if, if, if I did the things Aaron did as a pastor, I can guarantee this church would fire me tomorrow. I mean, golden calf and all that stuff is really bad, you know. But I love it, though. The Bible shows us that, that God's mercy is greater than all of our sin. Aaron was a complete failure in that sense. His success was because of the grace of God that worked in him. And so he didn't even really repent that good, but he said he was sorry, sort of, and went on from there and just trusted God. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath... Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, which came after the law, 
Hundreds of years later, David wrote those words about the Holy Spirit. It appoints a son who is made perfect forever. And this is the normal word for forever. So in closing, Jesus Christ, our high priest, is holy. That means he's special, separated unto God. He's innocent. That means he's without sin. He's undefiled. That means whatever Satan threw at him, nothing stuck to him. Nothing stuck to him. We have, according to verse 14 of chapter 4, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We read that he is separated from sinners. The word separated is the same Greek word used in the Bible for divorced. He's cut off from, separated from the sinners. It speaks of his death. In Isaiah 53, verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. We were supposed to receive the stroke. We were supposed to receive the punishment. But he was cut off from us and nailed to a cross. And that was his obedience. Obedience, but it was for our transgression. So he is divorced from us. He's not like us. He is without sin. And yet he is our high priest who brings us into himself and in Christ we are made like him. He is exalted above the heavens and so we also have been seated with him, the scripture tells us, in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. So in every aspect and in every way, Jesus is better than Aaron and he's better than all the Levitical priesthood. And if you wanted to say the whole thing as short as possible, he's actually better because his priesthood actually works. It saves us, and the other one couldn't save us. And none of this junk today can save us, that's for sure. But his priesthood actually saves people. So the next thing that we're going to look at, and we'll start it next week, it's a pretty long section, but we'll start it next week, is how the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice that he offered, is better than all the sacrifices that were offered before. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.